Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from, I teach them what you know about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. love racial identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. There is a story that professors Louise Derman Sparks and Carol Brunson Phillips often told their students in the first class of the semester at Pacific Oaks College to help them understand the complexities of learning about racism and what it means to be anti-racist. It goes like this. Once upon a time, a woman strolling along a riverbank hears a cry for help and seeing a drowning person rescues him. She no sooner finishes administering CPR when another cry requires another rescue. Again, she has only just helped the second person when a third call for help is heard. After a number of rescues, she begins to realize that she is pulling some people out of the river more than once. By this time, the rescuer is exhausted and resentful, feeling that if people are stupid or careless enough to keep landing in the river, they can rescue themselves. She is too annoyed, tired, and frustrated to look around her. Shortly after, another woman walking along the river hears the cries for help and begins rescuing people. She, however, wonders why so many people are drowning in this river. Looking around her, she sees a hill where something seems to be pushing people off. Realizing this as the source of the drowning problem, she is faced with a difficult dilemma. If she rushes uphill, people presently in the river drown. If she stays at the river pulling them out, more people will be pushed in. What can she do? As Dermot Sparks and Brunson Phillips lay out in their book, Teaching Slash Learning Anti-Racism, there are three potential scenarios to consider in this seemingly impossible question. First, you could rescue people in trouble and return them to the conditions that caused the problem. Number two, after rescuing people, you could teach them how to manage their problems so that if they get pushed into the river again, they at least won't drown. And number three, organize with people to destroy the source of the problem. As they write, anti-racism is about employing option number three, learning to understand and eliminate the problem on the hill. Our guest today, Dr. Carrie Ann Iskai, brings the anti-racism approach to the home and the early childhood classroom. Dr. Iskai is an assistant professor of early childhood education at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. We talked about the benefits and challenges of using anti-racism theory with young children. But before that, we discussed how her own childhood growing up in Trinidad has impacted her work. It is important to point out that racial categories or what we perceive as racial categories are products of social relations, history, and context. In essence, race is a social construct, but it's also a fluid concept. Thus, mm-hmm. well in the American and Canadian context, I may be perceived as Black. In the Trinidadian context, I am mixed, owing to the distinct social historical relations in that context. However, having said that, Because of my collective experiences with race, as well as my work in anti-racism and as a researcher of anti-racism, I consider myself Black. Uh, So in reading your doctrinal thesis, which I did find online, 
I came across a line that was interesting to me. You were mm-hmm. quoting your Aunt Patsy in the uh, thank yous at the beginning. And mm-hmm. you said that your Aunt Patsy, or Auntie Patsy, frequently yeah. told you that you're different and you're special. Yeah. So I'm wondering, as a young girl, what did that mean to you? To answer your question, that quote basically meant that she saw me as possessing unique talents. It didn't have anything to do with racial identity per se, but it was more about my academic abilities. And and again, to reiterate that, because it was my academic abilities, she emphasized the importance of school and doing well academically regularly growing up. School was of high importance. She ensured that we had all the opportunities available available to us to excel academically. So hence the reason why I felt was appropriate to, you know, to commend her or to give her that praise in the dissertation. Sure. Makes sense. And you go on to write a number of very kind and loving things about your family. You said those words from Aunt Patsy were words that uh, would continue to sustain my soul, which I just thought was a beautiful sentiment. And you had mentioned your brothers and your uh, parents and other family members. So was this warm, loving uh, nature something that you remember existing early on uh, as a child? Yes, most definitely. My early childhood was filled with much love and much support. And I do believe it's because of those early experiences that I was able to achieve what I have achieved academically, because much of the research has shown the relationship between the home environment, specifically the support that parents provide and children's academic success. So in saying that, I, it, it definitely played a role in not only my passion for academia, but in my positive sense of self. So what are your first memories of race or skin color, noticing that this skin color? Okay, so as a caveat, it is I must mention that Trinidad is a former colonized country. So therefore, the race relations and the issues of race will be different to the American context. Having said that, however, I was acutely aware growing up of not only skin tone differences, but also hair texture differences. More importantly, I was also very cognizant of the positive value accorded to such differences. There were specific contexts, however, that that helped shape my understanding of these racial characteristics, particularly how they how they function in the Trinidadian context. And those specific um, contexts included the school environment, especially the early years and the high school years, but also the media played a very instrumental role in shaping my knowledge about race. Now, I do teach anti-racism at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, and as a critical race scholar, I do believe in using counter-narratives or storytelling to illuminate knowledge or course content about race. And I often use many episodes from my own life, especially childhood experiences. One childhood experience I often give to my students is me wanting to have long blonde hair because the media in Trinidad at that time had so much cartoons in which white children and, and you know white cartoon characters were predominantly displayed. Mm-hmm. And the, the show that I, I give an ex- example of to my students is Shira. 
So Shira was this warrior princess and she had this long blonde hair. And I would tell my students that growing up as a young child, I saw these images of whiteness. I was surrounded by these images of whiteness in terms of the media and as well as the the toys that were available to to us in the Trinidadian context, specifically white dolls. There was an abundance of white dolls growing up in Trinidad. Mind you, things have changed because many years has passed since then, but the the the, the overabundance of toys that did not reflect the identities of young children in the Trinidadian context, definitely sent send a, a strong message about the positive value of whiteness. So how much of, I guess, how much of that were you aware of at the time versus how much of that is stuff that you've, uh, you've kind of reassessed as, as you've grown into uh, become a scholar about race? Okay, that's an excellent question. And I would say that much of my, I quote it as my unlearning, mm-hmm. occurred as a scholar. It occurred when I left the context. It occurred because I always had an, an, an I would say, a incipient or developing inquiry about the meaning of race and why it has been used in such a way specifically for advantage and disadvantage in not only colonized countries, but also in America and Canada. I always had that proclivity to study race and racism, but only when I left the context and only when I started doing more of the anti-colonial work, specifically by reading and engaging in in much anti-colonial discussions, then I was able to reevaluate or reinterpret my early years experience, I often indicate that my dissertation was a form of autobiography because I was able to unravel those layers of self that had been influenced by my colonial, neo-colonial experiences. Having said that, I do believe the the anti-colonial or decolonization journey is an ongoing one. And uh, the more I learn about issues of race and racism in America and Canada as well, the more I discover the interconnections between the colonization in the former uh, in former colonized countries and specifically the Caribbean context, as well as issue, uh, the issues that African-Americans face and African-Canadians face, which leads me to advocate for pan-African solidarity, because while there are distinct histories, we also have many commonalities, especially one being the effects and the longstanding effects, rather, of white global hegemony and colonization. So it's imperative for us to come together, regardless of our, our social context, to disrupt these, these the ramifications, economic and psychological, of the colonial legacy and slavery as well. I think that's a great point to bring up because I think it's something that um, they, it could be, say, like, well, you studied uh, uh race in Trinidad and Canada and does everything necessarily uh, apply to America? And while I'm sure there's some things that do, some things that don't, that's a very good point that you made about the, how, you know, the, he- the hegemony is 
it expands way beyond just a single country. It's just it's kind of like a there's almost a global hegemony that uh, there that has oppressed um, black people exactly. across the world. Exactly. So, so you know, I want to go back to what you mentioned about uh, skin color and hair color were some of the because you mentioned that in your research too as being some of those critical attributes for children's racial self identification. And I am just wondering again how your uh like what how you saw yourself i know you mentioned the um some of the media figures and wanting to have your hair but like what like what experiences did you have with your own um skin color and your own hair texture and style okay while i was very aware of my skin color i would say that at that time in Trinidad, growing up here texture was also very salient and is still is it, it it, it definitely still is. So I would say that the hair texture, in my experience, was what was more salient to me because mm-hmm. I would I would hear comments about hair texture and I would have even people comment about my own hair texture. I mentioned in my dissertation one memory that still stays with me after all these years is uh, at five years of age when my teacher is commenting about my curls, my curly hair. So hair texture, to reiterate, hair texture while growing up, there were many discussions about that in the home as well as the school environment. Have you found parallels to how people in Trinidad discuss hair texture to how African-Americans discuss hair texture? I do. I definitely do. And I see what I see in terms of the parallels are these longstanding psychological effects of colonization because the hair texture and the skin color are racial characteristics that were used in the early genesis of creating racial categories to dehumanize or to 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 create this kind of hierarchy where Africanness in terms of uh, the identity of being African, as well as the characteristics, were considered inferior or substandard. And through various mechanisms and means over the years, these ideologies of race have been cemented across the globe, wherever colonization and slavery had its impact. Therefore, the parallels are definitely there, but I think it also these parallels also point to the need for further discussion on how racial ideologies support white supremacy across the globe. In fact, many scholars, including myself, agreed that the ideologies of race, so the meanings attached to the race, attached to race, serve as a legitimating glue to substitute to condone and to perpetuate many forms of racial injustices. So can you give us some examples? All right. So let's start. Okay, if you were to use the African-American uh, African uh, history and as well as to use the American context, the dehumanizing of the African American male and the attaching of certain meanings to the African male body has led to this, this the public perception of the African male being deviant, uh, dangerous, criminal, all these negative connotations, which in turn, we can see now influences the disproportionate rate of African American males being in prison as, a, as opposed to their white counterparts. And as well, there are many other 
what we would refer to as dominant tropes of African-American females, such as, and this is drawing on Patricia Hill, black feminist scholar, um, scholar work on African-American females, such as the mommy, the, 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 the Jezebel, which is the overhyped sexual African-American woman. Now, when these specific racial ideologies are disseminated into the media, it further creates the the sanctioning of unjust practices towards both African-American males and females. But what I think is even more harmful is when children, those who are now developing their consciousness of self and self-identity and group identity, imbibe these in these insidious racial meanings into their own into their own concept of self. Therefore, critical discussions about race in the home as well as in the school environment is necessary to disrupt these these images of race and these meanings of race that have been widespread that are embedded in so many different social institutions and can be traced to the historical processes of colonization and slavery these racial ideologies did not germinate recently they are part of a much long longer standing historical record which continues to influence contemporary racial and social issues so you mentioned how children imbibing these messages and i so i'm wondering and this might be a chicken or the egg kind of question but is when so when how did you uh manage to focus in on early childhood uh education as your as a focus of your race studies um was it because of that kind of upon studying race did you uh focus on did you like have came across that research and that stuck with you or was it something maybe you were studying education and then you focus and then you learn race more and how kind of how did you come to study race and in early childhood education I do believe it was a combination of my scholarly research and my personal experiences. In fact, I think it's this synergistic relationship where personal self-experiences provide the impetus to explore the research in a much more deeper way. Mm-hmm. That said, while reading the research literature on children and race, I was making connections to my own experiences. And because of those connections, as well as my my uh, my exposure to not only the anti-colonial literature, but the critical race and the anti-racism literature, I saw so many theoretical and experiential linkages. I decided that this is a critical area of study. As well, um, my professional background, I am a, a former elementary kindergarten preschool teacher. So it was, again, it was a combination of many different factors, many different life experiences that converged to create this desire to focus on race as it appears in the lives of children and, and how it affects the lives of children where, where and their were you families in Canada. Okay. Did you, uh, were you noticing uh, race in Canada whenever, uh, like how your children were responding to uh, racially and uh, whenever you were in the classroom? Oh, yes. I have two experiences that testify to that fact, actually. I remember I was in a pre-kindergarten, so they were about four years of age, um, 
and it was time for them to get ready to go outside for afternoon play. And a white Canadian child didn't want to be next to an Asian Canadian child who was of darker skin tone because he, and I remember the word so, you know, so I clearly, he did not want to be to this next to this child because he said brown is bad. Mm. And I also have another memory of these little girls, African-Canadian girls, playing at the doll center. It was a kindergarten classroom. And a fight ensued because they did not want to play with the black doll. Hmm. They all wanted to play with the white doll. And I had to go and say, this doll is available too, but they, they were adamant about playing with the white doll. And it's interesting because I saw the same thing in my doctoral research in Trinidad. They did not want to play with the white doll, which harkens to my earlier point about this, the, the global impact of whiteness and how it continues to affect um, perceptions about race, even in the early years. It's interesting, too, that you had the this one, the, the male students said they uh, that brown is bad versus black is bad. It's kind of just because I feel like language is so interesting mm-hmm. in how people uh, voice these thoughts and these perceptions that it's uh that that was the phrase that that child decided to use versus uh black is bad mm-hmm. and i think he was if you were to use a developmental perspective i think it was because he was thinking more in concrete terms and not mm-hmm. abstract terms so black is a, is a more of an abstract racial category right. but however he was focusing on what he saw and what he saw was the child's skin color which is brown so I want to talk uh, some about anti-racism now because uh, it's something that I know is important, uh, really critical in the work that you've done. And so I'm wondering, I know that one of the key tenets of your research has the uh, has been this anti-racist theory and, um, and showing it, using it as a way to interpret children's racial attitudes as well as developing ways of teaching um, using an anti-racist approach. So for the layman out there, namely me, can you define for us what an anti-racist approach actually is and perhaps how it's different than a anti-bias or multicultural uh, approach if it is? Okay, so there are many elements of anti-racism that can be applied to the earliest teaching specifically. But if you want a general overview of anti-racism, anti-racism works with the fundamental premise that racism continues to affect the lives of non-white bodies. And racism is much more than individual prejudice or stereotypes. Rather, it refers to systemic practices that perpetuate privilege and power for the dominant group. So with the first tenant, we, we acknowledge the social salience of race or the significance of race. And second, we we recognize that how this concept of race continues to create advantage and disadvantage for members of the groups racially defined. So how so how does that differ from somebody like an anti-bias approach or like a multicultural approach? Okay, so in terms of the anti-bias, and I must admit there are many good um, tenets of the anti-bias approach. Uh, However, having said that, and the term anti the term anti bias refers to again these individual attitudes, as well 
bias lumps all of the social categories, anti-bias curriculum specifically, lumps all of these social categories into one, namely race, class, gender, ability, and so on. Notwithstanding the fact that experiences and identities are there, there are intersections among those, but given the historical record of the American society, it is imperative that we foreground race as the salient identity to which all these other identities will intersect again because of how race has been used in the American context. Anti-bias, with its emphasis on other social identities, it appears, and this is my opinion, it appears that it, it, it eclipses race. It does not afford race the, the, the primary significance that it deserves. And as a result, these, is, these mechanisms of white privilege and power are ignored and or, in, more insidiously, dismissed. The anti-racist approach, conversely, not only situates race as the central organizing principle of American society and also as the most salient identity, but goes one step further by acknowledging how specific components of white power and privilege affects children, not only psychologically, but economically and socially as well. In so terms... Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Continue, sorry. So, and in terms of white privilege, while much of the literature, the anti-racist literature and the critical race literature focuses on white privilege in terms of how adults benefit from it, anti-racism as applied to early child education, this is where my work is situated. I use anti-racism, early child education, elucidates or highlights how privilege, white privilege affect children as well and the different forms of white privilege that affect the lives of children. So this it's a it's a powerful concept, the idea of anti-racism. And it really is uh it addresses race so head on in a way that I think many so many people, particular white people who make up a majority of uh the early uh childhood educators in the United States and a and I'm wondering if this idea, if that's such a strong, powerful idea, if there is any, uh, if you receive any blowback from people that don't want the, uh, that don't like the idea of racism or anti-racism and, and being so central to this learning. And I'm wondering how you uh, address that whenever, if you in fact do receive any uh, pushback from people that might challenge the need for race being so central in this conversation. Okay, so I I I need to preface this response by <laughs> saying <laughs> that I am an anti-racist and anti-colonial scholar, heavily influenced by those valiant scholars who came before me. I consider I consider it an, an honor. I consider it a privilege to be able to continue the tradition of resistance started by my ancestors, who, in spite of much resistance, continued to wage war on the injustices of their day. So having said that, and in keeping with their tradition, 
while I may have encountered resistance to the term racism, as you mentioned, um, many people find the language too strong and would prefer bias. And, and herein lies a contradiction, because when you use language in such a way, you're actually reinforcing the same injustices you hope to disrupt or to dismantle. And I see that as a form of not only contradiction, but hypocrisy. And I'm going back to my earlier point, while I have come across such resistance because the language is so forceful and and highlights the issues in American society, it behooves me to continue to use that language because if the language is not accurate, if the language panders to the comfort of the dominant group, I too, I see myself, I too will be charged with providing a discourse that does not disrupt, but comforts. And I take much issue with such a charge. If it, and I, 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 I will avoid receiving such charge at any, at, at any cost because it's people's lives that are at stake. More so, it's the, the injustices that people continue to face. And if we, if we pander to this comfortable rhetoric, then we are complicit in maintaining these injustices and contributing to the pain it causes. I, this is why you're a pro. The, that was a fantastic answer and something that I could have never uh, dreamed of articulating. But the so, but I'm wondering. Just I'm just curious if the the people that maybe have pushed for pandering and mm -hmm. that you have been disrupting against is it? Do you find it more like is it are students any more or less? open to these ideas versus uh, fellow scholars that might be in this uh, field? Or is there any difference, I guess, is there a difference between the openness to this idea uh, in the kind of um, verse in the different types of groups that you interact with? Okay, so you're asking about the reception of the idea in terms of the demographic. Well, I've taught anti-racism for the last two years, and I must admit my students that I've taught have been very receptive to this kind of knowledge because one, maybe, you know, they are teachers and two, it appears that they have a very strong desire to affect change in the classroom and, and in, in, in broader society. And I do believe this may be in part to what's happening currently happening in the United States and what they're seeing in their classrooms. So they want the tools and the knowledge that are necessary to having these discussions with their students. That those are my undergrad, those are my graduate students, however, mm -hmm. with some of my undergraduate students, because I use race, a race-centered lens in my teaching and just in the overall structure and content of the course, I do I do have some undergraduate students who are, are less inclined to, to, to recognize the value of such knowledge, to recognize the value of anti-racism work. But then again, those are just few numbers. In terms of the scholarship, uh, the 
critical race, the anti-racism scholarly work, there is an abundance of research literature by critical race and anti-racist scholars. However, in the field of early childhood education, which, which will answer your question, much of the literature focuses on anti-bias. So there's this, this underdeveloped area of anti-racism in early childhood education that I'm hoping to stir up, that I'm hoping that others, there are scholars who do work on this. I'm not saying there are not, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping that more scholars would see the, the importance of advocating an anti-racism lens in early childhood education, not only from the perspective of teaching practices, because that's what the anti-bias curriculum does. It, it has teaching practices that are anti-bias, and also they they give you examples for how to create anti-bias uh, classroom environments and how to build relationship with parents and so on. But what I'm hoping for, however, in this anti in, in raising these anti-racist discussions, is that we create a much broader lens in which to critique current early childhood education practices, but from a race-centered lens, specifically how does this how does early childhood education as a field just as a field reflect white privilege and power but viewer centric perspectives for example in the reconceptualist scholarship we have many early childhood um, reconceptualist scholars who use critical race or post-colonial theories to critique some of these issues but it's it's a it's a few number Right, the dominant approach to early childhood education, one may one may um conclude, is very much grounded in Eurocentric perspectives, and this is what I'm hoping to disrupt with my anti-racism work. You mentioned the classroom, and I'm wondering, could you what does a anti-racist pedagogy or anti-racist teaching in practice look like? What is that? Uh, what does that look like in the classroom or in the home or uh, whatever setting you choose? Like, what does that look like? In terms of higher education, I call my pedagogy, I turned my pedagogy critical race, anti-racist, Socratic. It's very wordy, I, I will fully admit, but I do believe these definitions speak accurately to the kind of practices I employ in the classroom, but more importantly, the underlying rationale for these practices in the classroom. Specifically, I start with the content. What knowledge should be included in this curriculum? Whose voices should be included in the curriculum? What counter-narratives are central to including in this curriculum so that my students receive a broader and richer understanding of the course content? So, for example, in a family-centered partnership course, I have discussions and, and, and articles on racial socialization, on how racism affects parent-teacher relationships, I have content on different types of families, diversity of families, how class affects family life and family practices. And as well in my teaching, that's the content. So to move over now to the pedagogical approach, and this is in keeping with other anti-racist scholars, I use a lot of collaborative group learning, but also Socratic and storytelling. 
Socratic being, I ask a lot of questions. And storytelling, counter narratives, I use a lot of narratives from families themselves. So here's another example. One of the assignments for this course is for students to, into, to, to create a presentation on principles of family-centered partnership and then speak with parents about the course content to discover if there's any gaps or convergences or divergences between the parents' experiences and the course content. In doing these activities, my students recognize that scholarly literature at times may be at odds with real life experiences. And as such, it's very important to build a relationship with parents so that you can cultivate mutual understanding, respect, and so on, which in turn will also affect the child, but in a positive way in the classroom. So to, re to, to recapitulate, I use content that includes diversity perspectives, and I use a pedagogy that allows for questioning, collaborative learning, and counter-narratives. So when your teaching then is applied in the classroom, and say you walked into a classroom from one of your students, maybe a few years down the line that has had uh, experience doing uh, the work that you taught them how to do, what like what do you see? What does that classroom look like? What are the interactions that are happening? What what do you see in that classroom? Of what I would hope to see, because of, as of yet, I have not observed. <laughs> That's right. We're hopeful here. Well, yeah. What I what I would hope to see is one, as I told tell my students, anti racism a key part of it, especially for members of the dominant group, is critical self reflection. So, on that note, I would hope that they're critically analyzing their thoughts, their behaviors, the interpretations of student behavior. And second, I would hope that when they're teaching a lesson, that they're paying attention to how students' experiences either resonate with the lesson or, or do not res does not resonate with the lesson. I'm also hoping to see a classroom in which there are diverse form of knowledges represented. If you're teaching literature, are you using one form of one textbook only? It, when in, in terms of your assessment, are you using one form of assessment only? What forms of knowledges are you bringing in the classroom that will help students not only feel connected to the material, but also provoke them to, to, to conceptualize forms of social change? I think that's the missing link in terms of teaching and, and practice, especially where anti-racism is concerned. We need to also not not anti-racism, sorry, in terms of anti-bias. It's more than fostering positive racial identity among children. The positive, the, that's the first step, and it's a commendable step. But in my opinion, the fostering or cultivating racial pride should then lead children to not only recognize connections between themselves and, and other group um, identities in terms of, let's say, African-American or African-Caribbean, but then for them to consider how can we work towards social change for not only our group, but your group as well. So I want to get you out of here on a semi-unrelated uh, question uh, that, but I think it's, 
it's worthy just in the context of talking about race in general. And it's something that came up. Now, we've met before. We met in D.C. Um, and at uh, the NAEYC conference. And I remember in your talk, you had mentioned a student referring to you. And I, I didn't know. I don't remember if it was referring to you as Olivia Pope or as Kerry Washington. And but they they likened you to, I believe, Kerry uh, Washington's character, Olivia Pope on Scandal. And so I'm I'm curious as to see because now because some to some to the untrained ear, the untrained eye, or however you say it, that very well could just be construed as a uh, as a as a compliment. If somebody that doesn't think about race might not think of that in any particular way. Uh, but you had a different reaction to it than that, and I'm just and I'm curious if you can share your reaction uh, to that and why you had that reaction. Okay, so the student in question indicated that I had I remind her of Olivia Pope, so Carrie Washington's character, not Carrie Washington herself, but this right. particular character. Now, I'm not a fan of TV because as a race scholar, I know the media is heavily implicated in disseminating these very false um, images of racialized groups, so I, I tend to stay away from it. Having said that, however, my reaction immediately was informed by both my my scholarly experience and knowledge, but also my experience with this with this student and these groups of students in particular, because I was having racial discussions with these students um, at that point in time. Now. I am not too familiar, as I said before, of the, the the entire scope of the show or the character. But what I do know, based on my research, I was a little bit startled because my initial response was, why this particular character? And again, my questioning was informed by my knowledge of how not only how black bodies are read, but how black female bodies are read in particular, juxtaposed to the prevailing stereotypes of the black female. So it was almost a sort of trying to interrogate what was the what was the underlying uh, thought or perception that allowed my students to make this connection or allowed her to make this comparison, rather, is it because this character represented, you know, a form of power or positive sense of self, or is it because of how she was portrayed in the, in the show um, as underhanded, lack of moral character, a lack of moral traits, and so on? So to answer your question, I do believe my response was informed by my knowledge and of seri of specific tenets of Black feminism, as well as my knowledge of the students and the group of students in particular. So I think it's a just it's a good reminder to understand how thinking things through the racial 
an anti-racist prism, really, it, it takes the, you have to think about it a lot and think about how, like, what words matter and what, uh, and how, you know, what you say can kind of come across sometimes. And I think it's just that that's a good reminder of something that people might think is an innocuous thing that actually has more of an impact than people may realize. Exactly. And then I have discussions with other people about this, this particular experience as well. And one question that arose throughout our discussion was, okay, well, if her primary perception of you was positive, let's say strong, Olivia Pope is strong, she's intelligent, she has a strong work ethic. Why not find a character that suits all of these traits and not the negative ones? Mm -hmm. Why find a character that is a combination of positive and negative? So what does that say about how your student is interpreted, interpreting you as a person and you as an academic? Those were the, the, the some of the more challenging questions I wrestled with. Uh, uh, for example, how are you seeing me? individually but then how are you also seeing me as an academic well i like to think that we've learned a little bit about you as an individual and as an academic today so <laughs> thank you uh so much dr asai for sky for uh sharing with us today and talking with us okay adam no problem it was my pleasure in my skin is a production of the university of pittsburgh's pride program which stands for positive racial identity development in early education Pride is part of Pitt's Office of Child Development. The show was produced by me, Adam Flango, with help from Pride Director Aisha White and Pride Director of Engagement, Medina Jackson. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Subscribe to In My Skin on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get podcasts. And you can find every episode on our website, racepride.pitt.edu.